Welcome to the podcast series for the Gender Institute at LSE. In today's podcast, Professor Johnny Lavandusky reflects on the Gender Inequality and Power Commission's cross-cutting theme of power. There is a tendency to make numbers and presence, the presence of women in different institutions, a, a kind of proxy for power. So quite reasonably, critics will say, well, there are no women in business boards or there are no no women on the executive or there are no women in the high court or whatever. And they mean quite a lot by that. They don't just mean in a kind of flat-footed way that there are no women and therefore. They mean that the absence of women is symbolic of or a signifier of quite a lot of other things, including the nature of the process and the way in which power is disposed of. It's not just some automatic mechanistic notion, although sometimes it gets accused of being that. For the Commission and others concerned with gender equality, it it really isn't just simply a question of numbers, is it? It's not just about getting more women in more positions of power and influence, you know, whether that be political, business, legal or or the media environment. Well, I think having more women in positions of power, whoever they are, is actually part of a necessary process. In other words, I think it's necessary to empowering women, but it's not sufficient. I think it's part of the process of moving from necessary to sufficient. The way I am trying to conceptualize conceptualize power is that it's both a matter of presence and a matter of process. The nature of the process can impede how effective women are, and it does. If you look at something like the House of Commons is a very good example. If you look at an institution like that, now it was designed you know, in the 19th century to suit a certain kind of Victorian man. And very, very few things about the way it operates and functions have changed. So it underpins a certain kind of masculinity, which makes it very difficult for most women and some men to function in it. It's got a series of processes, rules, regulations, procedures, ways of going on, ways of its members interacting, all of which were designed to suit one kind of man. Now, it is changing, but it's really surprising how slowly it's changing, given that you know, there have been a significant number of women in since the late 1990s. Now, one of the things you raised in your presentation was the evidence for what type of research can lead to real change. I I wonder if you can talk us through that, what you mean by that. There are some big problems with the way in which the policymaking process works. One of the ways in which it works is that it's very receptive to quantitative evidence. It's impressed by quantitative evidence. Policymakers are very impressed by indicators, outcomes, indices, these kinds of things that are expressed in numerical terms. So there's a pressure on people, on advocates who want to change things to to express their findings in such terms. And that produces two kinds of problems. The easy one is that if you simply count and don't take account of process, then the kind of policies that you're going to lead to are inevitably policies that are adaptive. In other words, they don't challenge the status quo. They, in some sense, adapt to it. And one possible outcome of that, probable outcome of that, is that it's women who have to change. You gave an interesting example in your presentation of some research that had been carried out in a a Swedish school. Tell us about that. This research was policy-driven research, and basically the problem was that girls did not use 
the sports areas in equal numbers to boys. And so there were two approaches to this. In one approach, the design was to count the difference. So it was decided that a way of equalizing boys and girls' use of sports arenas was to make girls' days and boys' days. So at some level, of course, boys had to change because they couldn't use the sports areas every day and girls had to change because they could only use them on certain days. And that equalized the numbers. But that was kind of an adaptation to the problem which policy research didn't identify. In the other example, quite a lot of time and attention was paid to asking groups of girls and individual girls why they didn't use the sports areas. Because it was, of course, it was always possible that they just weren't interested in sport. And what they said was that they would use them and they were interested, but they didn't like the way boys behaved in these areas when they went into them, and they therefore avoided them. So the policy experiment in that case was to require boys to change their behavior when they use those areas, to make it a condition, if you like, that they, they wouldn't behave in certain ways. That, I think, is an example of transformation, whereas the other example is an example of adaptation. These are very simple. It's probably very difficult to implement something like this on a global scale. But it captures and illustrates, I think, what I'm talking about. I wonder, you talked a little bit earlier about the House of Commons as an institution, but I wonder what your concerns are more broadly about the role of institutions in maintaining the status quo. All institutions are there in order to reduce uncertainty, if you like. There are investments in, in making order, in making a process systematic in making it possible not to have to repeat everything you ever do. So institutions are, amongst other things, investments in process. One of the things about institutions is that necessarily, if they are investments in process, it's very, very difficult for them to change. Institutions are rules, if you like, that are followed by organizations, so it's the, there's an overlap. They're not the same thing. Institutions tend to solidify process in a particular moment, and, and they also are designed to inhibit change, because the whole point of them is to make something predictable and reliable. And that combination means that it's very, very difficult to feminize them in any process sense. But when women come into male institutions, the levers of those institutions will operate better if they use male strategies. Now, you're particularly concerned as well about the way in which the processes of policymaking do make it difficult for women to engage, not just in politics per se, but in the decision-making processes that affect us all. There is this path dependence that makes it difficult to change the decision-making processes so that the strategy, which we always used to say, the strategy is learn the rules, use the rules, change the rules. But of course, learning the rules and then using the rules means that you have to go through a as an activist or an actor, would have to go through quite an uncomfortable process. And to my mind, this set of institutionalizing processes, if you like, is something that we need to think of in terms of power. Somebody a long time ago, supported currently, has set an agenda and a way of doing things. And what's more, there's quite a lot of evidence, if you look at something like the Scottish Parliament, that even when you have a new institution that is trying to behave in a more egalitarian way, what tends to happen is that memories of how such institutions work contaminate the workings of the new institution. You've had what you've described in your own words as, as a very daunting uh, but very important task of pulling together some of the diverse evidence that's been presented at the Commission's event around this topic of, of, of power. Um, I wonder what conclusions you've drawn from it. I'm absolutely convinced that the way to go is to look really hard right across all the subsectors of the Commission, to look really hard at the relationship between presence and process 
in each area that the Commission's investigating. I'm very struck by the fact that there is quite a lot of counting going on, you know, quite a lot of notions of presence going on in each area, and there are quite a lot of evidence that feeds into an understanding of process in each area. So I think the Commission really would do well if it looked at both presence and process across the four areas and tried to connect them as part of its report. What recommendations do you think will it be in a position to make to those with power that might facilitate the sort of change it believes is necessary? It's not so much the recommendations, because I think those are fairly obvious, but I think that the recommendations should be addressed with a sensitivity to process. So if you're looking at politics, which is the area that I know best, then you would address uh, recommendations to government, to parliament, to political parties, to the civil service, to agencies, to local government, and so forth. And many of those recommendations would be very similar. But so you could possibly, if you wanted to organize it very nicely, have everybody should, and then particular institutions should, including, I think, there should be some recommendations to women's advocacy organizations. Johnny Lovendusky was talking to Chris Garrington following the Commission's final session in which it reviewed the evidence presented at its four sessions and discussed the recommendations it will incorporate in its report. You can find out more about the work of the Commission at www.lsc.ac.uk forward slash Gender Institute. And you can also follow us on Twitter at LSC Gender Tweet.